Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good, because do you know what day it is? No. It's 100 days till Halloween. Oh, (laughs) the countdown begins. It's never stopped. (laughs) (laughs) For me, today is just too hot. I mean, yes. So, you know, there's some good and some bad. Uh, (laughs) It is 30 degrees here in... Which is 86 Fahrenheit. Calgary. Um, I know because I've had to be translating that for co-workers down in the States frequently enough. Gotcha. And yeah, like, that's just too hot for Calgary. We had a Barbenheimer weekend, uh, except that... I did Barbie. And I did Oppenheimer. (laughs) I went with uh, a friend of ours, Kyle, who is half of the podcast, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. Over there, they rank movies out of five. So after Kyle and I had a good discussion about the movie, not recorded, like just Mm -hmm. hanging out, uh, he's like, you know, I think I would give it out four out of five. And I was like, okay, I think a three out of five. If it was out of 10, I would probably give it a seven out of 10. Mm. Like it was fun, but I have issues with it, but it's fine. I really enjoyed Oppenheimer. Um, I want to go see it again. Um, I thought it's one of Christopher Nolan's like better movies. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm a fan of his, to be fair. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I do want to note that the split of who went to go see which movie wasn't like a weird gendered thing. It was an accident of scheduling, scheduling <laughs> where we kind of wanted to see both movies, but things ended up being that one of us saw one and one saw the other. Yeah. Um, Out of five, what would you give Oppenheimer? Out of five, can I give half stars? Yeah. Okay, then it's like a 4.5. Out of 10? If it was out of 10, it would be like a 9 out of 10. Sweet. Yeah. You heard it here, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really, really liked it. I don't know if it crosses the finish line to like a perfect score kind of movie. But I really, really enjoyed it. And it was really cool to see Christopher Nolan kind of applying his skills to like a historical drama that Hmm. didn't have like thriller stuff going on. Um, I think it would be very interesting to do a double feature of Terrence Malick's Tree of Life and Greta Gerwig's Barbie. I also think it would be very interesting to do a double feature of Terrence Malick's Tree of Life and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Uh, Triple feature? Sure. Um, But that's not what we're doing today. Right. Ben, what are we watching today? Let's, let's, Let's tear ourselves down from the lofty clouds of Terrence Malick and Greta Gerwig and down into the gutters of schlocky Italian horror films. So today we are watching... L'Amante del Vampiro from 1960. That translates into The Vampire's Lover, uh, but the film was released in the United States under the English title The Vampire and the Ballerina, uh, much less salacious. But much more storybookish. True. So this film uh, comes to us out of Italy, uh, and its production was inspired by the success of Hammer's Dracula. 
Um, it was created by filmmaker Renato Pulselli, who wrote the storyline of the film with an explicit goal to combine sex appeal and horror as if that was in any way a new idea. The last week's movie. Or like all of the horror genre, really, like up yeah. to this point. Like, like I feel like we've we've had a few people being like, oh, what, what if the horror was sexy? And I'm sitting over here like the astronaut with the gun in the meme. It's always been sexy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that desire to combine the sex appeal and, and the horror, you kind of see it in the vampire and the ballerina title, but you definitely see it in the... Um, Vampire's Lover. Yeah. So Pulselli was born in 1922 in Arce in Italy, and he began writing and directing his own movies in 1952, of which this was the fifth uh, feature film. This movie was funded by sort of like independent, wealthy Italian financing, basically. And it was the first of six or seven horror movies that Pulselli directed through the 60s and 70s. From the mid-70s on, his films sort of shift into more strictly pornographic movies. Um, well, you got to choose a direction of some kind. Right. <laughs> Might as well go with that route, I guess. I will say that um, I work very hard to try and do good research for these episodes. Sometimes it can be challenging, especially for like lesser-known foreign films. This movie weirdly seems to skirt the line between lesser known and important there's a lot of like critical writing about this movie as if it was important but then not a lot of information about the people who worked on Mm. it anywhere so if we have any listeners who are like deeper into 1960s italian cinema and like know more facts about the people involved in this movie than i'm able to give in this episode like jump on in on you know twitter or tumblr or our gmail or whatever to share some cool facts uh with us that's screamscenepodcast.com so um pulselli came up with the storyline for the film and then there was a number of screenplay drafts created uh, by a variety of writers which were sort of tinkered around with and then thrown out and finally the one used was ultimately by a writer named ernesto gastaldi who was born in 1934 and attended the Centro Sperimentale di Cinematografia, the Experimental Center for Film, uh, which was the oldest film school in Europe. Okay. The first film school founded in Europe. Um, After graduating from film school, Gastaldi couldn't find work in the film industry, mood, uh, (laughs) and instead he became a writer of like pulp sci-fi novels. And it was from that background that Pulselli kind of plucked him out to write the screenplay for Lamonte del Vampiro, which was actually his first work professionally as a screenwriter. Okay. After this film, he would go on to write several more gothic horror films in that hammer horror mold, as well as sci-fi films and giallo films. And he's been called by a few critics like the first Italian screenwriter to specialize in genre film. Okay. Yeah. So is that kind of the context for why this movie gets brought up as being important? Um, The other context is this movie gets brought up as being important for being like that early example of like mixing sex and horror um, within an Italian film context specifically. Okay. But yeah, we're going to be seeing more of both Pulselli and Gastaldi uh, as more of their movies come out through the 60s and 70s. 
Uh, this would also be the first in a number of vampire roles for lead actor Walter Brandy, uh, who was born Walter Bigari. Um, but Italian films, especially Italian genre films of this vintage, really liked their leading men to adopt English-sounding stage names to pretend that they were English actors um, in kind of almost like a double blind where it was like it was thought to be more appealing to Italian audiences because then it's like, ah, like Christopher Lee, like this is one of those English horror movies that they've just dubbed and brought over kind of thing. Okay. But also at the same time, making it easier to like sell overseas of being like, ah, see, it's not Italian. They've got like an English actor in here. Okay, um, sure. Either way, he's actually an Italian. Uh, but he's playing the vampire um, actress Tina Gloriani, who's in this film, was cast because she was the director's girlfriend at the time of ah, filming. Okay. So is the vampire the director? Well, we'll find out if that <laughs> subtext is applicable after we've watched the film, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, the movie was shot for three weeks at a castle in the town of Artena. So there's like a legit castle in the movie. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that's definitely in its favor. And it was released on May 23rd, 1960 and was a mild box office success at the time. Good which, for them. Yeah, you can kind of tell by the fact that I mentioned that all these people went on to do more movies in this mold. Um, it made 98 million lire at the time. I don't have a good sense of how much money that is. <laughs> like, sure. just in terms of like the lira not really being a currency anymore, but also this is back in the past. And then you're like converting back to like dollars. And like, I just, I have no concept of if that's a lot of money, but I do know it was a mild box office success and it's cult status uh, means that in 2018 screen factory uh, put it out on a restored Blu-ray. Oh, good for them. Is that how we're watching it? Yes. Great. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy because uh, this sounds like it will be, at the very least, interesting and discussion worthy. Hopefully entertaining as well. Oh, you know, th that's always a hope. Um, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss La Monte del Vampiro, a.k.a. The Vampire and the Ballerina from 1960, directed by Renato Baselli. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching La Monte del Vampiro, a.k.a. The Vampire and the Ballerina, from 1960, directed by Renato Polselli. Um, ben, this movie's dope. Yeah, I actually really liked this. This I movie's thought, dope as hell. Yeah, I thought this movie did really well. They understood the assignment. Absolutely. They do wear their influences on their sleeve. Yes. But it is a good thing. Yeah, it's super cool. Uh, I think this movie is both sexy and scary. I think yes. it does a much better job of mixing those two than Horrors of Spider Island from last week. But I also think the gothic horror vampire milieu kind of serves as a much more natural bridge between sexy and scary than the, like, irradiated man spider thing. Yes, 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, they definitely bridge the sexy and horror. And they continue the trend from Horrors of Dracula that uh, a vampire bite equals coitus. Yeah, yeah, no, no, totally. (laughs) This is definitely like the next step in pushing the idea that like it feels good to get fed on by a vampire. Yeah. Let me tell the folks at home what happens. Yeah, for sure. Well, the film opens with a vampire attack in a small Italian town, and the woman we see that is attacked is a lady named Brigida. Um, it turns out this is like the third attack in a year, and the townsfolk are all like, yo, vampires, though. The local professor and the local doctor are both skeptical. They're like, no, she was just working too hard. She has like this weird anemia thing. Like, it's fine. Now, the professor has a dance troupe as guests in his house. Uh, I didn't count how many there were. Let's say 10-ish ladies. And their choreographer slash musician, Giorgio. Of the women, the two that we need to be paying attention to are Louisa, who is Giorgio's girlfriend and is also best friends with Francesca, who is in love with Luca, who is the professor's grandson, which is why they're here to practice. And also, I think he's like the manager of the troupe. He doesn't really have an explicit job, but his vibe is manager. Yeah. You know, a little skeevy, a little skeevy. Yeah. Uh, This is like cabaret ballet. That these ladies are doing. This is a lot of black. Yeah, I said dance troupe. Right. There's a lot of black leotards and fishnets. And like they do these rehearsals that start out very ballet and end very strip club. (laughs) Now, these ladies have heard the rumors from the town and they're like, well, Professor, like, what's up with this vampire rumor? And he's like, well, I'll tell you about vampire lore, but this is all just a story. It's not real, whatever. And this is the lore that we get in this movie. Uh, vampires were an ancient race that, uh, I think he's alluding to Archangel Michael. Says the angel of the Lord. Yeah. Doomed this ancient race to feed on themselves, to never age, to never die. When someone is bitten, they become obsessed with the vampire that bit them. One of the ladies is like, oh, that's so romantic. Like a sort of like love passion thing. And he's like, no, it's a bad obsession, like (laughs) an addiction almost. I love that like these ideas that are textual in this movie are like still ideas that like are what we're exploring in vampire fiction today. Yeah, absolutely. Now the sun can kill them. You can also kill them by staking them and they are repelled by crosses. Yeah, it's it's pretty standard vampire lore especially like accumulated hollywood vampire lore i think they say that if you're killed by a vampire you rise up to become a vampire that's in there too yeah they do have a thing about um full moons and like they only really attack on the full moon but from this point forward the movie doesn't really hold on to that so you know it's flavor yeah now, the next day, the dance troupe and everyone goes on an, an excursion to the woods, and Luisa, Francesca, and Luca all get separated from the main group. There's a storm coming in, so they need to take refuge in the abandoned castle. Turns out it's not abandoned. Uh, a lady is here. She is a countess, and she has a servant named 
Herman. Herman the human. <laughs> During their brief stay for tea, Louisa disappears and we see that she gets bitten. She returns to Francesca and Luca and is clearly like charmed. The Countess also discreetly asks Luca to return that night. She needs him. The Countess uh, dresses like it's 400 years ago and looks exactly like a painting that she keeps in the dining room. Also looks exactly like Anna Kendrick's. Really? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Maybe a little taller and uh, maybe black hair instead of brown. Mm. As... Francesca, Luca, and Louisa are heading back from the mansion. We see that the monstrous kind of vampire who had attacked Louisa heads up to the cemetery because Brigida, who was attacked in the opening, she's a vampire now. He arrives and she's like out of her coffin and she's already turned and she's like, I need to eat. What took you so long? I'm ready to be your bride. This is going to be great because I'm like in love and obsessed with you. He's like, that's right, girl. Yeah. You look great. Now lay back down in that coffin and you're going to be my bride. Just kidding. Stakes her, which seems to come out of nowhere. And uh, the way he stakes her, he like declares like there can be only one. Mm-hmm. Our intrepid heroes make it back to their villa and Louisa goes to bed uh, and then gets uh, the vampire visitor at her window. This is more of a sexy bite for her rather than an assaulty bite. Yeah, she's like... She's ready in lingerie. Yeah, she sort of gets herself revved up before the vampire arrives, you know? Yeah. Like, As he drinks from Louisa, we see that the monster sort of de-ages a little bit. Luca heads back to the castle, and he's like, Hey, Countess, yeah, we're going to get frisky. And she's like, yeah. But actually, here's my whole backstory. Uh, I'm a prisoner here, and Herman... My servant only pretends to be my servant. He is actually the person who's keeping me prisoner. I need you to help me. You need to attack and kill Herman. Herman suddenly arrives in, looking the same as he did before. And she's like, but not right now. Not right now. You need to leave now. Don't touch Herman. Don't do anything. Just go. I'll call for you later. When Herman and the Countess are together, Countess Alda... Her name's Alda, and that's what he calls her. Um, she suddenly bites him because she's a vampire. And uh, that's when Herman reverts back to monstrous vampire. So the setup of this movie. Herman and the Countess have a toxic relationship. She hates him when he's monstrous. But feeding off him is how she stays young. That makes him monstrous. He needs a steady flow of ladies to feed on, both to sustain his countess's youth and also for him to not be monstrous and repel her away. But remember that thing about, you know, you get bitten and suddenly you're obsessed with that vampire? Well, his obsession with the countess means that there can only be her. Mm-hmm. He kills any other bride that has the potential to shake his world. I think this is the first time we've ever seen something like vampires feeding on each other. Yeah. It's this really interesting, like cyclical thing where like you can draw out like a chart of like 
how <laughs> the relationships work. You know what I mean? So Louisa's under his spell, under Herman's spell. She hasn't turned. She's just charmed. And she gets used to basically draw Francesca out because he's like, great, another lady to sustain my lady. Mm-hmm. But you see, Francesca's a good little Italian lady who wears a cross. Mm-hmm. So he gets repelled and that attack doesn't work. Luca doesn't believe her about this vampire attack uh, to the point where like in order to really get Francesca out into the open because she's also like learning too much. Luisa tells Francesca like, hey, Luca's going after the countess. You need to come confront him about it. And that gets her pulled away, put into danger enough that Luca and Giorgio this time uh, come in to try to help. They managed to save Francesca, but from their perspective, Luisa is kidnapped. She's actually there by choice. And our boys, uh, so <laughs> Luca's wearing an ascot and Giorgio is looking like, you know, a, a guy who's hip in the 60s. So to me, they're Freddy and Shaggy. Um, but they race to the mansion. They confront Herman and the Countess. They do the make a cross with two separate items kind of thing. Yeah, from Horror of Dracula. Yeah. Uh, and push them to the roof where the sun is rising and the two burn up. Of course, there's pleading from the Countess of like, Luca, no, you're supposed to help me. Like, I'm just a damsel in distress. And Herman being like, don't listen to her. Her touch is toxic. She's the worst. But I love her for it. <laughs> uh, and they deserve each other and burn up um, slash sort of melt. Uh, yeah, they, they kind of like desiccate. Yeah. Uh, and that's the end. Um, Louise is dead. Louisa is found dead uh, before this. Um, so <laughs> you can tell there's a lot going on in this movie by the way that Sarah had to like kind of keep being like, oh, and this thing. I mean, hopefully none of that comes through in the edit, you know? <laughs> um, but what works for this movie that didn't work for Spider Island mm-hmm. is that, okay, we have a bunch of ladies for the sexy dance time, but then when it comes down to the plot, we separate our main folks. Yes. And it's just them in peril and they're really put into peril. Yeah. And because we don't have this expectation that like everyone in the dance troupe is going to get killed like one at a time, um, that's not set up as an expectation. It means that like, it means we aren't paying attention to all those extraneous characters, right? They're just there for the eye candy and we're focused on a core cast, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because by setting it up that like, Hey, we're just going to follow Francesca and Luisa. And then, mm-hmm. oh, hey, Luca happens to be here along. We know who our two main ladies are. And a lot of the movie is also focused on their friendship mm-hmm. and how that friendship turns a little toxic when toxic is uh, the buzzword for today, unfortunately. Right. Um, but it, it turns sour because of Luisa being charmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that the movie gives the two lead actresses playing Francesca and Louisa a lot to play because of that. Like we can sort of have a discussion about like Francesca's agency as a character and how she's portrayed as a woman and, and things like that in terms of like, it's a problematic 1960 movie where like she follows Louisa to the castle kind of intrepid hero style, but then like Louisa doubles back and sort of traps Francesca in the castle. So the vampire can get at her. And once she's trapped, like Francesca kind of just like folds like 
cheap laundry and starts crying and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, is that appropriate and blah, 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 damsel in distress discourse, etc. But it gives the actress, Tina Gloriani, who's the director's girlfriend, a lot to play because she can kind of go from like pissed off at Luca for not believing her to like following Louisa and trying to like sniff out the mystery to like scared in the castle to like having this full on nervous breakdown to like the kind of like almost like cattiness the two get to each other once like Louisa's evil and Francesca knows she's evil and this kind of thing. The actresses get a lot of emotions to play throughout the whole movie because of the ins and outs of the story. Yeah, I really liked the way that they played their characters. Mm -hmm. Um, Francesca is a great final girl. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, she gets kind of left behind when it's time for the boys to step up and do the plot. But the sequence where she is wandering the castle and getting further and further trapped in the web and she's realizing it, it's really, really effective. Yeah. I think that Luca and Giorgio kind of suck and it's almost hilarious. I like Giorgio. Leave him alone. They're fine, but like it is, it's really noticeable the way that Francesca should really be our main character. And then suddenly for the climax, the boys stop disbelieving them and actually come to the rescue and they're like cool Francesca you're safe great let's go to the castle and kill some vampires and like suddenly they're the action heroes kind of out of nowhere because that's gender roles folks you can really feel how the structure of the movie kind of has to bend to make that happen we're not quite at the point where we're allowed to have our you know Buffy Summers character basically but we had a main female vampire Mm -hmm. who is more than just dracula's daughter Mm -hmm. um who had like a really neat way of showing her agency by manipulating people Mm -hmm. um there were a lot of red herrings in this movie oh yeah like i thought for sure the professor was going to turn out to be the monster and then he he, he's just some old guy he's just a guy they really set it up well because the professor likes to go out walking at night in a fedora and a black cape with a very high collar and then like when people are getting attacked by vampires he's the one who's like oh no, vampires definitely don't exist. I know all the lore, let me explain it to you, but they definitely don't exist and we shouldn't do anything about them. So you, like, uh, yeah, you're totally convinced that he's going to be the vampire and he's not. The whole bit with Brigida, Mm. like even she was like, yeah, I've seen Dracula. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Like wander the cemetery and eat children, right? Yeah. And it's like, no, you're getting staked. Yeah, that was a real like, twist moment for sure yeah and the movie knows it yeah i think that the script is really good at taking familiar elements that we know from vampire movies and mixing them together in new ways i especially liked that the truth of the exact relationship between herman and alda like who's the servant who's the master who's the prisoner who's the jailer is really kept vague and ambiguous and mysterious because it's far more interesting for horror than like some exposition scene where we learn their life story through like a long 20 minute flashback. Right. And to have the two of them like right up till the end being like, no, 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 no. You have to save me. She's the evil one or he's the evil one is really fun. And I think portrays the fact that these are manipulative, bad people much better than any kind of like tragic backstory flashback does. Absolutely. 
I think this movie also gets some major points for being in a real castle. Yeah. Uh, it's really effective. At one point, they do uh, push down a wall. So I really hope that either that was a fake wall or they had permission. It really hammers home the gothic part that they were already reaching for with the sexy horrorness. It's cool that horror film has kind of been around long enough now that we're starting to see generational influence. Yes. So like Vampire was not a success when it came out, but the director of this movie, Renato Polselli, would have been around 11 years old when Vampire came out. And I have to believe that he saw it because Brigida is buried in this scene where she's in a coffin that has like a face window just like in Vampire, and we get these shots of her waking up in the coffin and like looking up POV as she's going through the churchyard that are exactly like Vampire. And that's such a specific mm-hmm. scene that it's not like any other vampire movie has done that, that like I have to believe that's a direct homage. Not even any other horror movie. Yeah, exactly. It's very specific. And I also have to believe that in addition to Vampire, that this guy has seen probably Nosferatu, definitely a lot of other vampire movies, not just Hammer Dracula, though definitely Hammer Dracula is a huge influence, not just on the like way that they do the cheap cross at the end, but also cheap as in, um, I think it's kind of bullshit that holding two sticks together makes a cross, uh, not cheap as in money. Um, but the <laughs> other thing that shows an obvious Hammer influence is the, we have to have a gruesome scene of the vampires melting, right? Hammer's Dracula also was like, no, let's go back to how Dracula was supposed to be sexy. Well, and like opening the door on the idea that the victims like it. Yes. Is kind of the the thing. Like, I think Dracula being like the vampire story, having an element of sex to it is like kind of always been there, whether it's beneath the surface or above. But I really think that the thing that Hammer Dracula really brought to the fore was this idea of the victims like it. And that's brought like rare into the fore here where we're getting kind of women like writhing in bed, moaning, waiting for the vampire to show up. But we also do have key signs, I think, of like influence from Universal Dracula too. The way that the Countess comes down that big staircase in her introduction is very Universal Dracula. And the kind of weird love-hate relationship between the Countess and Herman reminds me of Dracula's daughter a little bit. There were also moments where, like, when Herman is first introduced, Mm -hmm. the Countess calls for tea. Mm -hmm. We see a shadow and, like, slow steps. So you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's going to be, like, a hunchback servant. Like, we're just going to go with, like, these universal tropes. And then it's just, like, a guy. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing is... In addition to taking really good advantage of the location shooting, the movie just straight up has great cinematography. Yeah, the lighting was really fantastic. Like throughout the whole movie, not just in the castle, the uh, yeah choice of shots, the direction of things, nothing felt confused. Camera movement was yeah. always like really engaging. Like these guys know what they're doing and they're trying to do a good job of it. The music was really good, too. Music's good. Sexy babes are sexy. I don't know if it's just like 1960s Italian women or what, but like (laughs) 
they just do a very good job of like integrating the sexiness into the rest of the movie in a way that feels kind of natural and you, you heard it here folks italians are better at sex appeal than germans <laughs> there's really only one downside to this movie is it the makeup yes yeah the makeup is i okay like you can kind of see and get what they're going for but their execution didn't really work for me they they're trying to do the like when the vampire needs blood they look old and decrepit and when they've fed they look young and vigorous uh, which is an idea right from stoker's dracula novel that hasn't really made it into the mainline like english dracula movies we've seen it in like i think some of the more foreign vampire films have used it but here they go with this like full face mask yeah it seems like a rubber mask yeah and it's kind of got like a shine to it in the light that makes it look wet and the guy can't really speak yeah or emote through it um he's got like a weird flat frankenstein head too with this bad like wig it doesn't look good the bony hands are a little bit better um and then in addition to like the old decrepit vampire masks not looking great um the fangs for the teeth are really fake like really really like halloween store vampire teeth fake so those kind of bring the movie down even while the rest of it is really really good yeah i was pleasantly surprised um because when you hear a title like the vampire and the ballerina it's Mm -hmm. like what am i going to get the original title as per usual fits a lot better especially because it's like the lover herman is the lover yeah the, the countess like yeah i think it works really well um and i think this whole movie works fairly well uh it sets up tension really well yeah it's a really fantastic little diamond in the rough basically like i was expecting some trash right like i was expecting some like italian trash and instead found a movie that like knew that it was going to be sexy but still wanted to do gothic horror right and like just you know yeah did it good just did it good well i mean to be fair we're coming out of the german yeah spider island haven't really seen a lot of horror from germany yeah, that was like the second one from West Germany. West Germany. They've been through some things. The they're whole, out of practice. They're out of practice. Italy, you know, this has been like the fourth, fifth, maybe uh, since. I think third or fourth. Yeah. So since World War II. They have a bit more practice with what they're trying to achieve. I think the thing here is that in trying to do sex and horror together spider island tried to approach it through the 1950s radioactive monster sci-fi lens uh and even like that earlier west german film um the naked woman and the satan had you know it was a mad scientist movie but it had a lot of gothic in it yeah with like the big mansion and the immortal guy who's obsessed with the woman and and so on and that's the thing that this movie does right is i think that gothic horror melds into sexy a lot easier 
than monster radioactive sci-fi horror because gothic horror has that connection to gothic literature which also has a connection to gothic romance and so those elements all Mm -hmm. come together a lot easier and play a lot nicer and what's more romantic than a mysterious stranger well and like just the the way that visually you can play vampire attacks as a visual allegory for sex and whether that's in a salty or uh consensually way yeah exactly exactly or this movie does both yeah the movie you know plays around with ideas of you know consensual non-consent and things like that and that's a thing that vampirism lets storytellers whether they're being classy or exploitative play around with a lot easier than like weird gross spider people right yeah like it's just person there was one right but it's just like that's not as sexy (laughs) you know i can agree spider person not sexy right uh well let's move on to ranking for sure all right so i've got a pretty small range oh me too interesting uh do you want me to go first or do you want to go first you can go first because of the inspirations from vampire that i saw here i wanted to check where that was on the list. I knew that this wasn't going to go on the list near Horror of Dracula, the other biggest influence, because Horror of Dracula is up in the top 10. And as much as this movie was like a pleasant surprise, I don't think it's top 10. Correct. Um, so I looked for Vampire. Vampire's down at 53. And I was looking, you know, immediately above Vampire. And there's a lot of movies that I really feel a lot of affection for. The Blob, The Walking Dead, Phantom of the Opera, Cat and Canary. And beneath Vampire, there's a lot of really strong movies, too. Seventh Victim, Uninvited, uh, White Reindeer, Eyes Without a Face, etc., right? So as much as I really like uh, La Monte del Vampiro, it's doing what it set out to do really well. It's not exactly reinventing the wheel so much as just showing... Showing us a new style. Showing us how to do it in the 60s. Yeah. Right? Showing how you can do it in the 60s. And so I felt like it maybe shouldn't go above some of these films. But below Eyes Without a Face is The Screaming Skull, which is weird and wild and scary. But and also gothic. And gothic, but also kind of cheesy. And like, you know, you can tell that it was made with no money at all. And I think ultimately this movie manages to have a lot more polish than Screaming Skull does. So I made that my ceiling you know no higher than eyes without a face and then looking beneath that we have a lot of other foreign vampire movies we have the mexican sort of duology el vampiro and el ataud del vampiro which are crazy movies and very good very good super wild very fun in a different kind of way like they almost have like a pulpier energy than this film which has more of a um sultry feel to it um so i wasn't really sure like between uh la monte del vampiro and el vampiro like what was better but i knew i was kind of in the range and then a little bit beneath that we get to how to make a monster at 64 and i thought this was definitely better than how to make a monster so that's my range 58 to 64 well ben that's my range too really like spot on exactly pretty much um i also was drawn to where vampire was 
Um, and then I also kind of stopped around the Screaming Skull because of its similarities. And I knew it wasn't going to go above Eyes Without a Face. That movie is just too influential as mm-hmm. well for mm-hmm. future movies. So 58 was my ceiling. And I made my floor House of Wax mm-hmm. instead um, because House of Wax likes to take detours of ping pongs <laughs> in your face. Whereas this movie is like, its detours are dancing ladies in your face. Yes. You have a preference? I have a preference between a (laughs) ping pong ball and ladies. Um, For me, as much as I see what you're saying about Screaming Skull, the flesh and the fiends are right below that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I had 58 as my ceiling, but it was also like, it was in the sense of like, it could. Yeah. But Bore Kaibyo Yashiki is really good. That's the cat ghost, the Kaibyo spirit is like mm-hmm. this old lady mm-hmm. playing a cat ghost wrecking shit it's in color like there's a lot going on in it creatures of the night have we mentioned that we're cat sitting for the next two weeks i'm gonna be talking a lot about cats and sarah might be very happy to have this cat guest in our house she's so soft ben she's like a cloud <laughs> uh so i, I was feeling like kaibyo yashiki mm-hmm. like I don't know. Does it go above that or below? But I felt like El Vampiro, it can go above El Vampiro. Okay, interesting. Because, yeah, that was the main talking point for me was like, is this better than the Mexican vampire films? I think yes, because those movies are interesting because they are updating Dracula for a Mexican context. We talk a lot about in those episodes how that was explicitly their purpose, to make Mexican horror. Right. Whereas... Lamonte del Vampiro is making 1960s horror. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Ultimately, I think those Mexican vampire movies are a lot of fun, but I think the cinematography and a lot of the directorial choices here make Lamonte del Vampiro a better horror film, even if the makeup is not great. I'm inclined to go above Ghost Cat Mansion because as much fun as Ghost Cat Mansion is, it's got that like kind of complicated flashback structure and it has this like it has a a high that that movie hits sort of in the middle that it doesn't really get back to in my opinion i also think i liked this better than flesh and the fiends but yeah but that movie really goes for things right like it has close-ups of like a guy's face as he's watching someone get strangled Sure, sure, that's true, that's true. Yeah, I, I think that Bore Kaibyo Yashiki is being, has maybe some, I think you're supporting it because there's cats in it. No, like, I think it's, I mean, look, it's it's number 60. Right. There's clearly, like, good horror to it as well. <laughs> yes, for sure. So the problem is, is that, like, I think my personal taste puts Lamonte del Vampiro higher but how strongly do you feel about it should go beneath Bore Kaibyo Yashiki? What I'll say is that Kaibyo Yashiki, it digs into its, the theatrics mm-hmm. in very classic Japanese style. Yes. Um, which can, uh, I'm a slut for aesthetic, we know this. Um, this movie, Lamonte del Vampiro, also has an aesthetic but it's not so theatrical that it kind of pushes you away, mm. right? I find the aesthetic of Tim Burton 
pushes me away sometimes. Hmm. And L'Amante del Vampiro, its aesthetic feels grounded in reality. Hmm. It does feel a little bit like you wandered too deep into the forest and now you've entered Fairyland with a giant castle. Yeah, I mean... Which felt very fun, like very unique. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of got a Cocteau vibe yeah. to it in addition to the drier vibe, which all means it's very European, right? Which, like, no surprise. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can put it above Bore. Okay, so entering the list at the new number 60, below The Flesh and the Fiends, above Bore Kaibyo Yashiki, is L'Amante del Vampiro from 1960, directed by Renato Polselli. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, or you can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can help support the show by leaving us a rating or a review, subscribe to us through our RSS feed, tell a friend about the show to help word of mouth uh, spread this good, good podcast around. Uh, or if you really like what we do, uh, consider heading on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $1 level get thanked on the show. At $5, you get access to weekly bonus audio. Patrons at the $10 level get access to uh, essays and reviews and stories that we write and put up on there. So there's just a lot of really cool extra Scream Scene goodness and content if you head on over to patreon.com slash Scream Scene podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, um, I don't want to alarm anyone, but next week's going to be kind of a big deal. Oh. So our next episode is going to be on Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Sweet. So expect a long one, Creatures of the Night? Definitely going to be a long one. I'm excited because <laughs> Ben knows this. My shame. I have never seen Psycho. Yeah, so that's going to be really interesting. Yes, I know uh, what happens. Yeah, you exist in the world. Uh, I've seen select scenes But yeah, I'm excited. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.